Erwin Lutzer, who pastored many years, a friend of mine in Chicago, um, he wrote a book, and the book was How You Can Be Sure You Will Spend Eternity with God. That's the name of the book. And he said, five minutes after you die, you will either have had your first glimpse of heaven with its euphoria and bliss, or your first genuine experience of unrelenting horror and regret. He said, either way, your future will be irrevocably fixed and externally, if you will, unchangeable, end of quote. That is a sobering thought. Your first five minutes is in glory, or your first five minutes and forevermore will be in, in everlasting separation from God. Grace Church of the Valley, is it possible to know in this life where you will spend eternity? If you were to die today, and I don't mean to be morbid, okay? But if you were to die today, are you confident that you would go to heaven? I'm glad, Nick. I was just standing at the gravesite service for my father-in-law last week, this last week on Tuesday, 92 years of age, and I know he is in the glory of heaven. Is it possible to have assurance of your salvation or do you live with eternal insecurity? I want you to open your Bible this morning to John chapter 10. And I want to show you from the word of God that your salvation is secure. That your salvation is sure. And I believe that nowhere in all of the scripture is there a stronger affirmation of the believer's eternal security than right here in John chapter 10. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, if any man is not sure that he's in Christ, he ought not to be easy for one moment until he is sure. He said, friend, without the fullest confidence as to your saved condition, you have no right to be at ease. And I pray that you may never be so. Spurgeon said, this matter is too important to be left undecided the eternal security of the believer, meaning that if you're genuinely saved, then you're saved into glory. But certainly, beloved, not everybody believes in the eternal security of the believer. Uh, A Roman Catholic certainly doesn't believe in the eternal security of the believer. If you walked up to a 100 Catholics and I'm not trying to be caustic this morning, I'm just sharing with you that there's truth from the scripture that we differ on, and this is one of them. If you walked up to a hundred Catholics and asked them, if you were to die today and go to heaven, uh, do you have the assurance of where you would go? They would all say categorically what? No. No. Because I've asked probably hundreds of them. 
They don't know that. And they don't know that because if you stand before God and he puts you in the scales of balance, how would you know? In fact, you wouldn't know until that moment. The Catholic Church, and I'm just sharing this with you so that you understand that what Jesus is going to say is different, but the Catholic Church, according to the Council of Trent, a document, a council and documents that came out of that in the 16th century, and and the reason I'm reading you the Council of Trent, there's a reason they don't have assurance. They don't teach assurance. And in that Council of Trent, it said this, and they still believe the Council of Trent, and I'm quoting, any believer's, quote, assurance of the pardon of his sins is a vain and ungodly confidence. So they just teach it's a vain, how prideful, and it's an ungodly confidence, okay? Cardinal Roberto Bellarmine stated that assurance is, quote, a prime error of heretics. So in other words, if you believe in the doctrine of eternal security, they say that it is a prime error of heretics. The Council of Trent went as far to say that if anyone says that a man, and I'm quoting here, who is born again and justified, that he is assuredly in the number of the predestinate, comma, let him be anathema. In other words, if you believe in the doctrine of eternal security, the Council of Trent said, let him be anathema. So I'm just saying that as we turn to the eternal security of the believer, not everybody believes that. And it's not only the Catholics who deny that we can be certain about eternal security. Many Armenians, not Armenians, you know that, Armenians are a nationality. But people who are of the Armenian persuasion, and you say, what, what, is, what is that? Some of you will know what I'm talking about. Some of you don't. Armenian is a theology named after a man by the name of Jacob Arminius. And Jacob Arminius was a Dutch theologian. And he taught, did Jacob, Jacob Arminius, that you could lose your salvation. That is the Arminian view. It is what we also know today as the Wesleyan view. We would also know this to be true in some Nazarene churches as well, is that you can lose your salvation. In other words, you can't have security because you do not know that something might happen to you that would cause you to forfeit the salvation that you have. And so we come to this most important truth is the scriptures teach that you can be certain and still be in a state of grace at the time of your death. You remember we spent months on this in 1 John chapter 5. John the apostle, the same writer here as John, said, these things have I written to you that you may may know that you have faith in Christ. 
that you know that your salvation is secure. Now, when we speak of eternal security, it is also known as the perseverance of the saints. And I think this will come up on the screen. I'm just making this clear to you. Sometimes we talk about eternal security. We also talk about the assurance of salvation. Theologically, we would put it in a background that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, this is by Grudem, is all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives and only those who persevere until the end have truly been born again. So it is what we call the perseverance of the saints. In the book of Jude, you remember there, it says that God is able to keep you from what? Stumbling. In other words, the promise of Scripture is that God will keep you and he will never allow his children to fall away from the faith so as to be forever lost. The Bible says there in Jude that it is not that he might keep you from falling, but the Bible says that he will keep you to the end of your present life for all eternity. God keeps you to the very end. The word keep there in Jude is a military term. It means to guard. It means to watch over. It's the idea that God is standing at his post, standing guard over you to ensure your eternal security. Now let's turn our focus now to John chapter 10. And we've been looking at John chapter 10 and the argument here of the good shepherd. And we've been watching these five sequences from 10, 22 through 42 that reveal both the deity of Jesus Christ, as well as the unity between the father and the son. So there's five different sequences here. And we've looked and we're at the second sequence. We looked that the trap was set. Look back at verse 24. Or excuse me, look back. Yes, excuse me, at verse 24. Remember, they gathered there and he, they asked him, they gathered around him in 1024 and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. In other words, they're setting a trap for him. And they were asking a question, but really they were trying to trap him in a word. He had been clear and we spoke on that all through the 10 chapters of the gospel of John. It led to the second sequence is that he began to proclaim a truth to them. And the truth that he's proclaiming is the context in which we find ourselves in, in verses 25 through 30. And he laid down four truths there. He talked about the first truth of human responsibility for unbelief. He said twice there, I told you and you do not believe. And so there was a human responsibility for unbelief. Secondly, there was a divine sovereignty in belief. Look at verse 26. He said, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And we talked about God's sovereignty in calling us that the sheep, namely, hear his voice and follow him. And that led to the identifying marks of a believer. And look at verse 27. He said there, here's how you know that one is a believer. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And that's where we left off, hearing and following. They follow. 
And you'll note, and we said this last week, that the sheep are not passive. They listen, they hear, and they follow, but the action certainly results from the gift. It's the gift of the Father to the Son. Those whom the Lord calls reveal the fruit of their faith by hearing and following the Lord. It's not just come forward. It's not just walk an aisle. It's not just pray a prayer. And I would say to you that he or she who ceases to follow is not a true believer. And I think we would well understand from the Gospel of John, not all who profess faith will be saved. False professions are made. And the Bible says that many do fall away. Many will say to Jesus on the last day in Matthew's Gospel, Lord, Lord, and they will not be acknowledged. In fact, oftentimes, when one hears discussions that are related to eternal security, one has the feeling sometimes that even if one were to spit in the face of God or even curse God, God would still be unable to do anything but preserve such a person. Well, the Bible says here, here under the identifying marks of a believer, those whom the Lord calls reveal the fruit of their faith by hearing and following the Lord. And it is these sheep that are guaranteed of the next truth. And so we come to this fourth truth today is the eternal security of the believer. And we're going to walk through 28 through 30. Our security is not dependent on our efforts, but rather it is built on the bedrock of the promises of Christ and on the power of God. Can we dive into the text and look at this wonderful truth that Jesus proclaimed? Let's begin at verse 28. Jesus says there, he says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Let's walk through this truth. The first thing he says there in 1028 is that I will give them, it's the power of the word, look at it again. I will give them eternal life. In other words, the promise of Christ to his sheep is eternal life. The promise of the word of God is everlasting life. In other words, if you're in Christ and you're one of his sheep, your salvation is forever settled in glory. And if you've come to Christ, he gives you eternal life. In fact, one of the things I want to say is that Jesus is not an Indian giver. I mean, once you come to Christ, you're saved. And here is the promise. It's a profound promise. I give them eternal life. Now, I suppose if you're of Arminian persuasion and you're saved by your decision and you're going forward and your deal, then you can somehow undo the deal that you did. But that's not what the Bible says. Jesus profoundly says to you, I give them eternal life. And it's in the present tense. He's not saying I will, but I gave, if you will. In fact, look back just for a moment in John. Just let let me take you back just a few statements to sense this truth. Go back to John chapter 3 
And certainly you've seen this truth before, but I want you to see it again afresh and anew with your eyes again. Certainly you remember John chapter 3, and after he talked in verse 14 about Moses being lifted up, you know, as the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. 3.15, whoever believes in him may have, what? Eternal life. Listen, you can't lose what Christ gave you. In fact, look at John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has, what? Eternal life. This is the teaching of Scripture. Look over at John chapter 6. John chapter 6, in verse 27, after he had fed there the 5,000, and after he had walked on water in 627, Jesus said, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to, what? Eternal life. Now look at the next phrase, which the Son of Man will give to you. In other words, salvation, beloved, is a gift, and God gave you that gift. Look at chapter 6 in verse 51. There, it uses that phrase, I am the living bread, 651, and I came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, here it is, he will live for how long? Forever. He is not an Indian giver. He lives forever, is what the text says. In other words, life is never extinguished. In other words, when you come to Christ, he gives you life through all eternity. That is the teaching of Scripture. Enough for me to say, beloved, that this is not a one-year contract, okay? Now, I'm being facetious there. Athletes sign one-year contracts. This is not a one-year contract. This is eternal life. It lasts forever. This does not have an expiration date on it. You understand? Listen, your salvation is secure. I give, Jesus says, eternal life. Go back to John 10. But he adds another phrase there to it. And you might even know this by heart. But in John chapter 10, verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never, what? Perish. And so, beloved, you can see it there. You have a positive. I give them eternal life. And Jesus comes back with a negative, And he says it this way. They will never perish. Literally, by no means, they shall by no means ever perish. This is an absolute, unequivocal, unassailable negative that you will never die. <laughs> you will never perish. And so the positive is everlasting, eternal life. Here he puts it in a negative. You're never going to perish. In fact, look over at John chapter 5 for a moment. Do you remember that great statement there? And I'm looking at the flip side of eternal life, never perish. He makes that statement in 524. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, there it is again, has eternal life. And then this phrase, he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to what? Life. You can't pass from death to life and then switch back over again. I mean, this is the clear teaching of Scripture. I mean, I'd want you to walk away if you're in Christ, feeling that we just sang this morning, nothing 
can ever separate you from the love of God. This is the teaching of Scripture. Look over again at John chapter 8 and and 51. And I'm just highlighting the never perish. In 851 of John, it says there, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he, in 851, will never see, what? Death. You say, well, Scott, I don't know if I feel that way. Well, I don't know if you feel that way. But this is the truth of Scripture. Look at it again in 51. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This is a promise. As you hear, as you follow a response to his grace in your life, the assurance is that you're never going to see death. One more. Look over at John chapter 11. John chapter 11. After he had raised Lazarus from the dead. I'm just pinpointing these. Everyone in 26. Everyone who lives... And believes in me shall never, what? Die. Listen, beloved, and I'm being, uh, I don't know if it's the word facetious. You cannot be unjustified. You can't get saved and be justified and declared righteous and then become unjustified. And by the way, these might not be English words. That word might be. You cannot be unredeemed. You can't be redeemed and then at a later time, be unredeemed. You say, well, well, Scott, then what's the assurance? The assurance is hearing and following. But you can't be unadopted. You can't be brought into his family and then unadopted out of his family. You can't be chosen from eternity and then unchosen. He gets an eraser out and wipes you off the, the, the gift of life. You can't be called and then uncalled. You can't be saved and then unsaved. You can't be born again and then, I don't even know how to say it, unborn again, okay? That is to say, when you come to Christ and when he redeems you, he gives you eternal life, you never perish. And what that means is you will never face God's wrath. You will never be banished from God who called you and redeemed you. You will never be lost. You will never be condemned, Romans 8.1. God so loved the world. Do you remember to say it this way? That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not, what? Perish, right? Shouldn't die. And I don't take the die there, the perish there, as though you go into nothingness It just means this, you have the confidence that you'll never face God's wrath. Jesus has already took God's wrath for you on the cross. This is just so clear. In fact, look back in John chapter 10. Not only does he give eternal life in 28, not only does he promise that they will never perish, now Jesus says this, no one will snatch them out of my hand. What a statement. The hand obviously is a, symbol of power. In other words, a thief can't take you out of his hand. A robber in the context of John 10 can't take you out of his hand. A false teacher can't snatch you away. And I really believe that he's, he's doing a play on words here. Look at it in 28. He says, no one's going to snatch them out of my hand. But if you go back in the context, look at John chapter 10 in verse 12. When he's talking there, about the hired hand, remember that? And not the shepherd. In verse 10, 12, 
who does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And then remember this phrase? And the wolf snatches them and what? Scatters them. The wolf in the picture just sinks his big old ugly fangs right into the back of that sheep and drags that sheep out of that sheepfold. Here's the assurance of what Jesus is saying. No one's going to snatch you out of my hand. No one. No one will ever, ever snatch you away. No believer can ever be lost to a cult forever if they are a true believer. Because I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. And then this promise, no wolf or thief is ever going to snatch you away. Listen, to think that you can lose your salvation is to say that the Lord has failed you as a good shepherd of the sheep. To say that you can lose your salvation, I don't know another way to say it, is actually to call Jesus a liar. Listen, when you're in Christ, you say, well, how do I know? I talked on that last week. You hear, you follow him in obedience. And to hear the clear teaching of this for truth is that he gives you and grants you eternal security. Look back to John chapter 6 just for a moment. Look how strong Jesus said this. Do you remember that in John six thirty seven When he says all that the Father gives me, and we'll talk about that in a moment, will come to me. And who comes, whoever comes to me, he says, I will never cast out. And then look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose what? Nothing. He's not going to lose you, beloved. He's not going to lose me. He, he, he says, your love gift by God the Father to God the Son and the ones whom the Father gave, he's not going to ever lose. Look over at John chapter 17. John chapter 17 and verse 12. He says, and remember he's in his high priestly prayer, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, 1712, which you have given me. And he says this, I have guarded them and not one of them has been, what? Lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But that little phrase there, not one of them has been lost. Look over at John chapter 18 and verse nine. And it says there in 18, nine, He says, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. But then this, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not what? One. Listen, if you're in Christ, as you bear fruit, as you see that fruit in hearing and following, I just want you to know, Jesus Christ, you're in the palm of his hand. Listen, I just want you to know this. He didn't even hand you off to the angels. He didn't give you to an angel, hey, keep this one secure. He's a loose one for me. You're held in your security by Jesus Christ. He loses none, and our salvation rests in Christ and his promise to keep us. But that's not all. Look back at John chapter 10. You're not only held by Christ, and you know this statement in verse 29. Look at it again in 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What a statement. He says, my Father 
who has given them to me. Now, if you just highlight that statement, it's a wonderful statement. My Father who has given them to me. God the Father gave to God the Son a love gift. And that love gift was you. And the Father gave you as a love gift to his Son in eternity past. And we are a love gift from the Father to the Son. In other words, he redeemed us and he gave us to his Son. In fact, look over again at John 17. I just want you to see all of this in Scripture. And we'll certainly give this to you. But just that phrase, the Father gave us to him. It says this in John 17 too. Have you seen this before? When he's talking there in 17 too, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. In other words, in eternity past, the Father gave you as a love gift to the Son. Look at 17 verse 6. Jesus in his prayer said, I have manifested your name to the people to whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And then look at this confidence. And they have kept your word. In other words, I don't know if you ever look at it that way. If you ever have an identity problem, you don't ever need to have an identity problem. Somehow in the mind and the heart of the triune God before the world was ever created, God the Father gave to God the Son a love gift, and that love gift is you. And so this is just the teaching of Scripture. In fact, I'm showing it to you there in 17. Look at 17.9. Jesus said there, I am praying for them. That's for the sheep, right? And I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have, what? Given me. So I I guess I'm just saying to you, how does God the Father call you to himself, give you to his son, and lose you? It just doesn't make any sense. It's not clearly the teaching of Scripture to say that anybody can lose their salvation if they're truly saved. The Father gave you to the Son as a love gift. Look down at chapter 17 and verse 24. Father, I desire, he's still praying, that they also whom, in 1724, you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Incredible. Now go back to John chapter 10. See the sequence there in this teaching of Scripture. My Father, who has given them to me, Jesus said, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's, what, hand. It's a remarkable statement. The Father will protect what he, in incomprehensible love, has given to his Son. And what the Father gave to his Son is now in the possession of both. You are eternally secure. We are secure by God and his son. Now listen, beloved, I've lived this Christian life long enough. We are surrounded by enemies, many of them. First, our flesh. We're surrounded by our own weaknesses. We're surrounded by the devil himself. But listen, there is no force, 
There is no person that can ever snatch you out of God and Christ's hand, is what the text is teaching. Nor can anybody snatch you out of the Holy Spirit's hand, if you will, because he sealed you, according to Ephesians 1, on the day of redemption. Now, you might ask, well, who is greater than God? And the answer is no one. What power, what force is superior to God? Listen, the text says he's greater than them all. Jesus Christ received us as a love gift from God the Father, and no one will snatch us out of his hand, and no one, beloved, is stronger than God. Amen? No one's stronger than him. In fact, I think up here on the scripture, it's going to appear Romans 8, and you know this great section of scripture. It's a little print, right? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Now, you understand that. There's many things that can be against you. And one of the things that is against you is you. <laughs> oh, I just, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know, and you live in eternal insecurity. Your conscience at times is against you. It plays tricks on you. It says there, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? In other words, who's going to do it? Who's going to come at you? Satan, the devil, his, his fallen angels, the demons. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who, what? Justifies. Who is the one who to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died more than that, who is raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then this, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Nothing. Listen, you are doubly secure. You don't have to go to the end of your life and wonder, is this going to work or not work? You can imagine what that will do to you. And the truth is, some of you might wonder about your assurance when this is the clear teaching of Scripture. And if you're in Christ and you're hearing and following and you're here today, then you need to be held secure, doubly secure, both in Christ's hand and in the Father's hand. Now look down at the text, just this in 1030. Do you understand this? He says there, I and the Father are what? One. Now, just for a second here, because we, uh, we want to always teach the Scripture. And one of the things that's amazing in the Scripture is just the language of the Scripture. I think we've seen that for many of us much of our life. It's a great statement there. I and the Father are one. It's held up. It's quoted. Sometimes it's just quoted to, to speak of the deity of Jesus, Jesus Christ, and certainly it is. But I think it's insightful a little bit if... If I could explain this to you, and if you forget it, it's okay. You'll understand the sense of it. 
But look again when he says in I, verse 30, I and the Father are one. The word one there, very important, is not in the masculine form. It's in what we call in the Greek language in the neuter form. In other words, he's not saying I and the Father are one and it's put in the masculine form. If it was in the masculine form, it would mean that Jesus and the Father are one person. And if you said Jesus and the Father are one person, that would destroy what we would say is the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? And so it's not stated that way. We know that within the biblical concept, there is one God in what? Three, what do we say? Persons. He is not saying I and the Father are one person. That would be known as the heresy of Sabellianism back in the early centuries of the church. We know they're not one person because you can quote the scripture with me and in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was what? With God. And the word what? Was God. In other words, the word was with God, but he's distinct from God, if you will. It's one person, right? We would say it's one God, excuse me, in three persons. So the one here is not masculine. It's neuter in form. You say, well, Scott, what does that mean? It just means here in the language that they are one in purpose is the thought. They are one in mission here. They are one in aim. They are one in goal. In other words, as it relates to the eternal security of the believer, they share the same will. They share the same purpose. Jesus and the Father are one in action. Now, John's already been saying this. Look back just for a moment at John chapter 5, okay? Go back to John chapter 5. You remember there, this is not new. Remember there in John 5, 16, this was from the Jews and they were persecuting Jesus because he was, 5.16, doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. And he says there in 17, and I am working. And he said, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God Verse 19, so they said to him, truly, truly, Jesus said to them, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own account, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. In other words, God the father and God the son have equal sovereignty. They share equal love. They share equal divine power to secure the sheep because they are one in purpose and one in essence. In fact, Jesus prayed in John 17, 10, all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. So all the sheep that belong to the Father belong to the Son. And so here, look back now in John chapter 10. It reveals oneness in action. And yet... You would agree with me. That's just by way of language, but it's far deeper than that, isn't it? The oneness that Jesus is claiming is not only oneness in purpose, 
but it's oneness in nature and in essence. So I would say it this way. This is not only oneness in outward operation, but oneness of inner essence, if you will. For Jesus to be one with the Father, yet distinct from him, if you will, uh, here is tantamount to a claim of his deity. In fact, this is yet another powerful claim to his deity. You say, well, Scott, why is it his deity? Well, look down in the text. We'll pick this up in a week to come. He said, the Jews answered him. This is why they're going to stone him. He said, it is not for a good work that we, are, that we are going to stone you. He said, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself, what? God. They knew what he was saying. Listen, beloved, your eternal security depends not on your own fidelity, if you will, to hold on to Christ, but his firm grip on you. He is not going to let go of you. Father's not going to let go of you. The son's not going to let you. You say, but pastor, I just, I've struggled. Hey, you're still here in the choir this morning, aren't you? You say, but pastor, I made a bad decision five years ago. You still hearing and you still following? You say, but pastor, if you knew my life, what I was once like, and I'm so ashamed. Listen, he forgave you all your sin. And when you came to him, he granted you eternal, everlasting life. And there is absolutely no power, no force, no demon, no Satan figure that can ever, no false teacher that can ever snatch you out of his hand. There is no false teacher that can ever snatch you out of the father's hand. The father gave you to the son as a love gift in eternity past and your salvation is secure. You can live your life with joy. You don't have to wait to the end and see what happens on the, it, would that be a horrible way to live? I just don't know. I mean, I don't know if I can, if, if, if when I get there, I hope I've done more good than all of a sudden we're getting into works. Listen, you're saved by the precious blood of Christ, Amen. And if he redeemed you in eternity past, then you ought to walk out of here and just be blown away by this doctrine. This is one of the most practical doctrines that anybody could know. And you mothers need to teach your children this doctrine. Need to watch and make sure that there's visible fruit, the hearing and the following, so that you're not dependent on some past decision. But as you come to Christ, as you continue to walk forward towards him, as you continue to love him more, listen, you could have the assurance that your salvation is secure in Christ. So when we asked at the beginning, is it possible to have assurance? I would say absolutely. In fact, beloved, it was this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And by the way, I quoted that earlier, the perseverance of the saints and and I like that doctrine, and, and certainly it's the doctrine we taught. I like the phrase of it. Uh, sometimes the, the, the confusing part of the perseverance of the saints is you think it's you persevering. But when you look at the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, it's God persevering on your behalf, right? It's Christ holding on to you. It's God never letting go of you. And so we do say perseverance, but just understand he's the one that's holding on to us is what the reformers taught. And it was this truth that brought the great preacher C.H. Spurgeon to Christ. Listen to what he said. I love this quote. He said, and when I heard that it was the Lord, that the Lord would keep his people right to the end. Then when I heard Christ say, my sheep 
hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. He said, when I heard that said, I must confess that the doctrine of the final preservation of the saints, he said, was the bait that my soul could not resist. He said, it was the sort of life insurance, an insurance of my soul, an insurance of my eternal destiny. Spurgeon said, I knew I couldn't keep myself, but if Christ promised to keep me, then I would be safe forever as long. And he said, and I longed and prayed to find Christ because I knew that if I found him, he would not give me a temporary salvation as some preach. He said, but eternal life, which could never be lost, the living and the incorruptible seed, which lives and abides forever for no one and nothing could ever separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, end of quotes. God used that doctrine to bring him to to himself because I think he used to trust in himself that he could never stay faithful to the God who supposedly was calling him. But when he found out that it was Christ who would hold on to him, that the father who would hold on to him, he found the gospel so sweet because then he could put all of his trust in the Savior who redeemed him and called him and loved him and justified him and so forth. So listen, can you know? Sure, you could know. Sure, you can know. You say, but pastor, sometimes I have doubts. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the difference between assurance and eternal security. Assurance is sometimes the assurance you have. But from the mind and heart of God of eternal security, that's what he does on your behalf. And no one's going to snatch you out of my father's hand. You say, well, pastor, what about those people? And there are probably some even in our church that you know that just aren't here. And they're hardly ever here, but maybe special times. Or you have people in your family. You say, well, pastor, what about those people who, who, who supposedly came to Christ and then walk away? Well, it does say in John, they went away from us because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, been of us, 1 John 2, 19, they would have not left. Oh, certainly there's going to be obedience and a hearing and a following. And certainly we don't just depend on some decision 20 years ago. But listen, if you're in Christ and you've come and you've trusted Christ and you're a believer and you get tripped up and you you stumble certainly at times, but listen, God's gonna hold on to you in Christ Jesus, amen? Here's what the hymn writer Charles Bancroft said. He said, when Satan tempts me to despair. That happens to me. And I'm sure it happens to you and tells me of the guilt within. Upward, I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and what? Pardon me. For every look you take to yourself, take 2,000 to the person of Jesus Christ.